Um, my name is Nick Byrne. I'm the director of the Language Centre here at LSE, and I'm also on the LSE Arts Committee. Um, LSE Arts, um, yes, arts, for anybody not from LSE, or perhaps people actually at LSE, the arts do exist at LSE in um, a way that connects up to the whole spirit of social sciences. And do remember that there are events going on every week throughout the academic year. Um, we actually have the Atrium Gallery. Um, there are exhibitions on there on a regular basis, and we have other regular events as well during the daytime. Um, however, I am particularly pleased to welcome Martin Kemp along tonight. Um, this book, Christ to Coke, accompanied me on a study visit to Berlin and was my essential bedtime reading. And it really is a tremendous good read. And I'm, I'm actually stunned that I'm actually able to um, hear you speak this evening. Um, I'm not going to speak for long. Um, I've got an introduction. Um, the big thing is, obviously, Martin Kemp, Emeritus Research Professor in the History of Art at Oxford University. How can you beat that? Um, and an amazing personality on TV and screen. And particularly, we've had quite a sort of buzz in the media at the moment about Leonardo and Mona Lisa. And it's something I think that's going to be very, very interesting looking at his whole oeuvre. Um, we are going to hear something that particularly connects to you at LSE and to people doing social sciences. The whole thing of when we choose things at the arts is particularly looking at photography, looking at the way photojournalism is a way that we can access um, the arts at LSE in a way that really makes sense for us and actually connects with what you do. And this particular theme of how image becomes icon, if any of you have, well, you're all far too young to actually um, have enthused about it when you were young, uh, Roland Barthes mythologies, um, is this whole thing of how we look at images, how we look at icons, what becomes icons, and what actually goes into our actual minds. So what we've got, we've got a good 50 minutes. I'm actually going to sit amongst you in the audience because there's some amazing things to be seen. Um, and then we'll have a good time for questions at the end. So I'd like you to welcome uh, Martin Kemp to LSE on this very sort of strange evening. It's hot and it's windy and it's rainy outside and you've had an alarm bell. But actually give a very warm welcome to your talk. Martin, thank you. Uh, thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. It occurs to me this lecture theatre is a kind of uh, uh, a symbol for political views. Um, the extreme right wing over there have a very skewed view. The extreme left wing over here have an extremely skewed view. And there's a, there's a large centre who, of course, uh, as they would claim, always see things straightforwardly. But um, there we are. Uh, Christ to Coke. Um, framed fairly obviously by um, two iconic images and the one on the right I needn't describe what it is the one on the left is obviously Christ but it's more specifically the um, famous icon from Mount Sinai from, um, from the 6th century greatly repainted but early enough to be one of the definitive uh, trendsetters in this um, it makes a nice title, Christ to Coke, I like alliterative titles. Is it simply a matter of vulgar commercial opportunism that 
I've framed it with these, these two. The answer is not entirely. And if you Google Christ and Coke, you get some very remarkable things. Um, he's the real cool, with a K inevitably. Eternally refreshing, he's the real thing. Um, that echoes that very famous um, commercial of the kids on the hilltop singing, it's the real thing, which of course Pepsi isn't. Uh, and thou shalt never thirst in a theological direction. The really creepy one, this is my blood, which is um, very extraordinary in relation to Coca-Cola, though we will see that there are slightly bloody aspects to the history of Coca-Cola nonetheless. Uh, but it signals that something's extraordinary going on. When you get into these uh, mega images, they separate themselves out from context and function. They become something quite different from an image which functions within the field of its original making. And if there, is, if the, if there are definitions of iconic images, there is, that is one of the definitions or one of the characteristics that... Um, they transcend original meaning, they have a kind of peculiar specificity, but also an extraordinary fluidity and a multivalent, multivalent qu um, uh, 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 quality. As a historian of the visual, I've been taken into areas of writing I haven't met before, and also areas of confrontation, in particular corporate bullying. Um, and I need to issue a disclaimer at this point. Um, this lecture has not been approved by or endorsed by the Coca-Cola company or any other company, and any views expressed in it are those of the author and not the Coca-Cola company or any other company. Coca-Cola, in capitals, please observe, Coke and the Coca-Cola bottle are the trademarks of the Coca-Cola company. This is a disclaimer at the beginning of the book, put in after about a month of... Uh, legal advice between Oxford University Press and, and, uh, and Coke. It's very bizarre, isn't it, that uh, Pepsi were fine, Ford Motor Company were fine, and in the visual business, uh, Disney and Coke are the ones who are known to be the real buggers in this. Um, but you know, there's a book written by a retired Oxford professor. You know, what's it going to do to them? Just bizarre. And yeah, I'm choosing it as an iconic image, so it's hardly that I'm, I'm saying uh, ultimately that they haven't done an extraordinary job with it. Uh, the last of my images, chronologically, although the Coke bottle is of course still going, but in terms of its origins, is E equals MC squared, the Einstein formula. And I thought it would be interesting to tackle uh, a formula as an iconic image, which appears on T-shirts and all sorts of variations. And I thought, right, nuclear physics, we're back in safe academic territory, there won't be any corporate bullying, there won't be any particular problem with image rights. Um, but not a bit of it. Einstein, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which have the Einstein papers and the rights to his legacy, uh, which is what he, where he left them, uh, they've assigned the operation of Einstein rights to the Green Light Company. This is a company that represents dead celebrities, and he shares this with uh, Bruce Lee, Mae West, um, Steve McQueen, not the artist, but the, the, the actor. And Einstein is a trademark, and Albert Einstein is a trademark. So you run into difficulties with this as well. And 
uh, very characteristically um, in exactly the same way that artists' trusts and other owners of rights do. They denigrate objects they don't have themselves. And it's a, it's a well-known strategy. You sort of keep the value of your own central holdings up. And below the, the time cover um, is the blackboard in Oxford, which Einstein wrote on, and increasingly rather like Joseph Boyce the artist, people treasured these blackboards. And this was passed to the History of Science Museum by the Professor of Physics, who I think was a Nobel Prize winner. Anyway, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem said it's of doubtful authenticity. And the director of the History of Science Museum in Oxford went up in the air more rapidly than I've seen anybody go up in the air before. But equally, um, time covers. Time, Einstein appeared in five time covers. And it cost £700 to illustrate a time cover. So I was wanting to do a collage of all five, which is a wonderful kind of visual commentary on the fortune of Einstein in America that simply becomes not feasible. Um, so in writing this book, there are all sorts of uh, things happened which uh, are not those which a historian of art um, generally encounters. I thought some of the artistic images were difficult in terms of rights and costs, uh, particularly Leonardo images owned by Elizabeth Regina, PLC, um, that, are, that are extraordinarily expensive for worldwide rights. Anyway, so it brought me into into other areas. It also, in writing, brought me into other areas which, uh, for a historian, are, um, certainly cause certain anxiety, and we will see how that, um, how that worked out. Uh, how to present this? I've got 11 iconic images, 11 signal images as chapter openers. Uh, I thought, how do we do this in a lecture? Uh, to go through each of the 11, just as little pen portraits, as it were, in an even pace, seemed not to be the job. But I thought I'd simply run through the 11 to give you an idea what the choice is um, and what's coming. The first image is Christ, and that's an easy choice because that's the naming, that named the type specimen, as it were, um, because the Greek word for icon meaning image has, as you know, got attached to that kind of image of Christ or the saints, very typically in Eastern Orthodox religion on a gold background with a fixed, what we would now call an iconic, hierarchical, hieratic image. Um, and it's one that even artists like Leonardo um, were constrained when they portrayed this image. This is the hot news in the National Gallery. Some of you will have seen... Um, news stories about this and maybe even Fiona Bruce and television programs uh, but this is to appear, this is the first new Leonardo painting which is going to get generally accepted most of the Leonardo scholars are already on board since 1909 and so that's over a hundred years since a new Leonardo painting came along uh, Christ of Salvatore Mundi um, Leonardo, compared with the rather obvious frontality and communicative quality, has done a kind of Mona Lisa, in a way, on, on Christ, um, leaving lots of ambiguity. And with lots of fancy optical effects, he's dealing with um, depth of field, as we would now describe it, and um, uh, I won't go into detail with that, but with the hand in focus, the face rather out of focus, 
and a rock crystal or calcite sphere, which is, uh, uh, indicates that Christ is not the Salvator Mundi, just he's the, he's the saviour of the cosmos. So a very remarkable painting, but um, that will be down the road. Well, it's already down the road. It's owned in America. It's, um, it's already been shipped, and it's, um, it's going up on the walls in the National Gallery at this very time. But that's one of the images, anyway. Uh, the second one is the cross, which obviously has Christian implications, but is, as we will see, a, a symbol which works across a whole lot of cultures. This I particularly like. This is uh, from a, a ranch near Santa Fe in New Mexico, and it's where, on taking a coffin along a hot, dusty road, often some distance to the burial place, the resting place, the descansos, where they rested the coffins, they would erect a humble, um, a humble wooden cross. One of the nice things for an art historian dealing with this book, I'm not always dealing with high art, I'm dealing with some of the most basic uh, communicative images that you can, you can handle. Um, the heart shape, the heart, um, very ubiquitous. Um, you can think of lots of examples uh, without straining where that is used. The, the one I've used here is an absolutely wonderful thing in the Postal Museum, um, the British Postal Museum, and it's a very complicated, almost a kind of origami heart from the late 18th century, which unfolds. It's clearly done by an amateur poet. So the, the, the rhymes are absolutely wonderfully awful. Um, uh, but uh, a very remarkable object. And why the heart shape? Anyway. Uh, the lion, I decided on, uh, as, a, as a ubiquitous symbol, Trafalgar Square. You can hardly go around any cities, any, anywhere that has ruler imagery without the, the lion featuring. These are Chinese lions, as you may well recognize. They're one of... Um, a number of pairs in what used to be the Forbidden City, what is now the Imperial City in, in Beijing. And uh, remarkably unlion-like in a way they are, but equally they're, they're almost sort of more lion-like than lions. Um, the Mona Lisa, um, if you're doing, I didn't have much choice. Uh, a contemporary image, Che Guevara, in the posterized version by Jim Fitzpatrick in Ireland, um, and Irish television has got big into this because they, uh, to find that one of the iconic images is generated by an, uh, by an Irish designer has become uh, uh, pretty hot news and, and although it's already known in, in, in Ireland uh, an up-armed girl um, choosing photographs of course is a very wide choice uh, and Probably there's been, in people I've discussed this with, there's been more debate about whether this is, should have this exalted position in, in my list, but I'll explain about choices later. Anyway, it's a, it's a famous image. Um, the American flag, the Stars and Stripes, a century ago it would have been the Union Jack. Um, there are other iconic flags like the um, Hammer and Sickle, which is gone. A memorable image. Um, how many people now know what the Russian flag looks like and could draw it? Right, all the students from Russia. Yeah, good. <laughs> no, normally I don't get a response like that. Normally people sit there. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, Coca-Cola, inevitably, which uh, I'll, say, I'll be saying more about, so I won't uh, dress up on that. The double helix, uh, two, one from science, and this is, as you can see, the cover of the Human Genome Project, Watson and Crick are amongst the mugshots, which are, are go into that uh, sort of pixelated, pixelated image. Anyway, this is the great fat human genome uh, issue of nature. Um, and E equals MC squared. Um, this doesn't have a definitive single visual image. It's a kind of conceptual one, a bit like conceptual art. This cartoon is by Rex May um, Balu, who's done a series around uh, cavemen. Um, I think they're particularly nice. One of the things I should say is that using images and indeed poems, as I do, from living uh, writers, uh, I may have said things about how difficult it is dealing with coke, but the actual generators of these images, like Milton Glaser in for I Love New York, have been wonderfully helpful, extraordinarily generous, and um, reading things and, uh, and, and assisting, assisting more generally. Those are my 11 images, and I suspect that those of you who are thinking a bit about it say, why has he left out that? What, what's happened to that? Or surely X is more, um, is more well known than uh, one of the ones I've chosen. Well, I should say straight away, the strategy is of types. The 11 represent different types of images rather than a top 11. Um, a top 11 might have been, I might have had too many works of art in it if I did it, etc., etc. So the strategy I adopted was to talk to lots of people, as everybody's an expert. I'm in a sense, as to what is a famous image, I'm no more an expert than you are. I just happened to have researched the ones which I've chosen. Uh, so I ended up with these enormous bags of images, uh, but it was clear that you could group them into types. So I then decided, and 11 is not, uh, um, it's a nice prime number, but uh, you know, it, could be, it could have been eight types, it could have been 20 types, but they fell fairly naturally into these types for me. And what I would claim about the individual images you've just seen through is that they stand a decent fighting chance of being the top images. And I'm not going to lay down in the road and say, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely guaranteeing that. And I'm not denigrating things I've left out. And as you see, if you look at the book, I've smuggled in lots of the uh, runners-up, as it were, um, along the way. Let me give you some idea of the types, and then... Uh, as to what, what I mean by types of iconic images, categories of iconic image. And then I'll look at four case studies across quite a range just to give you an idea of how odd these images are and how um, remarkable they are in many ways in, in terms of how they function. There are obviously individual faces. I mean, we know how much brain power goes into faces, both recognition of faces and facial expression. So Christ, Mona Lisa, Che fall into that pattern. Um, we're incredibly good at recognizing faces even in very degraded way or even kind of smiley icons on computers, which bear very little resemblance to a face if you think about it. So faces are a particular category. And individuals, Jesus, Mona Lisa... And, uh, and, and Che Guevara. Um, there's a, yeah, the Christ is a religious image, but all the images 
they end up by having a sort of cult status in some way. It's a common place to say that art, art galleries are the kind of temples of the modern age. But uh, pilgrimages happen. The Mona Lisa is, of course, above all um, the painting which is subject to a pilgrimage. And when it was stolen in 1911, the cues to see the gap on the wall were longer than to see the picture when it was actually there. Um, so very extraordinary. This was take a, a picture taken by one of my students, and I particularly like it because of the the reflection of the, of the crowd. And nobody has really seen this image unless they've seen it out of the frame, but everybody goes to see it without being able to see it, as it were. Uh, general symbolic images, um, images which are very basic graphic symbols, the cross and the heart, the, the heart shape. I'm not thinking of the heart as a cultural object in its own right, but specifically this, this image. So these are, are types of a graphic symbol, um, very basic and not quite so basic. Um, an animal. Animals so much stand for things, and I thought, well, maybe an eagle is, is, is the great image. But in fact, if you go around the world, the ruler imagery, even in countries where a lion wasn't seen, China didn't, did, they had lions given to emperors as tributes, but it wasn't the native animal. Um, and it, it gets through from ruling imagery to popular imagery, Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Um, I remember as a child going into the cinema and you, you got two of these things. You either got the big sweaty man, man with the gong, most of you are too remember, young to remember this, or you got the lion. And this is the lion that made it from the, talk, from the silent movies into the talkies. This is the first talkie lion. This is Slats the lion being filmed. And I think it's a magic photograph, isn't it? This um, solemn recording of the lion who's just going to do this snarl for the MGM films. The MGM, of course, now have gone bust and been, uh, and been, and been taken over. Uh, big national symbols, um, the flag, clearly we needed a, a flag. The example I've chosen here is actually a rather a gruesome one. This is made by an artist called Andrew Krasnow, Out of Human Skin. Immensely resonant object. If you, he, he doesn't say it has a single meaning, but um, uh, if you think about the history of skin, you think about the history of America, you can make up your own meaning for this, which is exactly what's intended. And of course, uh, Coca Cola, which is probably the most successful bit of imperial product design ever. Um, uh, I think almost without argument. And a photograph. So the, I wasn't saying that the photograph of the nap-armed girl was more famous than, say, the image of Che Guevara or the Coke bottle, but it, it is immensely famous as a photograph, uh, alongside other war photographs. Um, one of the interesting things is how often the photograph, we don't know the name of the artist, the photographer, and we don't know the name of the subject. Um, how many people with the one in the top left there, know the name of the photographer. Amazing, isn't it? If it was a, if it was a painting, we'd all know the name, name of the artist. Um, Nikut, who is a, a Vietnamese photographer who got a sort of Americanized name. Um, the one on, and the, the girl is Kim Phuc, a remarkable figure who's, um, who survived, as we'll explain, and be has become a United Nations Peace Ambassador and has a foundation for war-damaged children. 
But again, not a name we know, but if it was a painting, of course, we would know the subject. Um, on the top right, Eddie Adams' photograph, again mega famous, of the uh, Viet Cong being shot by a uh, Vietnamese general. Um, the Robert Kappa photograph, and I suspect more of you would have heard of Robert Kappa in this photograph. He, his name is attached to it of the Civil War militiaman and Joe Rosenthal's Iwo Jima, which has appeared in subsequent films, John Wayne films, letters um, uh, from my father, um, and was reenacted at Ground Zero, um, life imitating art. It's interesting uh, the proportion, and I'm not saying there are not photographs in other areas that are very potent, but it's interesting how many of the major photographs are um, the really mega photographs, the ones which are really famous, are of war. And the relationship between the camera, the real thing, and the spectator is of a particular kind in photography. And, and it's also interesting they're mainly in black and white. Um, the Vietnam War, of course, was the most photographed war. There is no way that any military organization would now allow, uh, allow photographers to roam around as the Vietnam War photographers would do. They're embedded, they're controlled a lot more. So I think there will never be another war photographed with the levels of freedom uh, that, were, uh, that, that worked in the Vietnam War and I think um, armies learnt a lot of lessons about um, let it, letting loose photographers to show what they would show. Um, uh, the, two, the two science ones, E equals MC squared, which of course is coupled with the image of Einstein, um, one of the most familiar images of any uh, genius, anybody in any field, um, certainly in science, and that this is the Time 1946 cover, which indelibly associates e equals mc squared with the atomic bomb, which, given the fact that Einstein is an absolutely un implacable pacifist, um, is an interesting association, and the human genome, which we've already seen, the Mona Lisa of modern science. Um, uh, let me now just pick out four examples to give you an idea of the, the kind of range of material and, and the demands it makes and the meaning of them. Uh, the Descansoff here, the um, one I've already looked at. But an example of a kind of image which art historians are a bit reluctant to deal with. Um, this is the um, Volto Santo, the holy face so-called, in the cathedral in Lucca. Um, the legend is that it was carved by Nicodemus, the, um, of the biblical story, who was a sculptor, according to legend. He was carving uh, this image of Christ um, after his crucifixion and couldn't do the face. And an angel arrived and completed the face overnight. Um, it's one of these miraculous images. Uh, it's then adorned with all this enormous paraphernalia of devotional stuff, of garments, of uh, additional, additional symbolic incrustation. Uh, art historians tend not to look at these as they're not kind of high art, but if you go into a church and you look at the images which are still being used for devotion, on the whole there are these very traditional images, old-fashioned icons, um, People tend not to say devotions in front of a Titian, uh, in front of a Titian or a Raphael. So 
So it's these images that, uh, that actually hold the spiritual potency in a way which um, the high art images uh, tend not to, which gives an art historian a certain amount of cause for, uh, cause for thought. And of course the idea that an image like the Veronica, the Shroud of Christ, or even the Turin Shroud, is generated by Christ himself is very important in iconoclastic controversies as if Jesus or spiritual agency generates images of Christ then you can hardly say the Christian religion shouldn't have images so they're very important in that respect uh, the cross appears in other cultures it appears in the Bakongo culture in the Congo culture in Africa initially for cardinal directions on the, on the horizontal plane and for a cycle of, um, of life and, and death in the, in the vertical plane. And many of these images, uh, many of these, yes, they're really images, don't survive because they were part of ritual, they were part of temporary, uh, temporary mark-making. This one does survive. This is a Bakongo cross with very characteristically the diamond-shaped um, cross uh, in the wooden arms but uh, with, a, uh, with a brass St. Anthony inserted in it. So here you've got the merger of a traditional African imagery um, with, um, with a, a bit of Christian imagery, merging with it entirely seamlessly. And in this case, this is in the, in the Metropolitan Museum. But these images, which can be benign, can be malign as well. Uh, it seemed right to the cross itself. The Christian cross obviously has its tragic dimensions to it, but it is a redemptive thing. Um, but the flaming cross, Ku, Ku Klux Klan, and that's an image from 1956, and you can go now and look at the Ku Klux Klan website, and it is very scary. Um, it's remarkable what they can get away with saying about their membership um, uh, in official uh, doctrines today and the hooked cross, the Hackenkreutz um, fantastic piece of graphic design by Hitler himself as uh, pretty well documented as such but he's got the proportions exactly right to make effect by rotating it that way it gives it a sense of dynamism the distance between the, the points of the arms and the uh, the white uh, circle all work almost perfectly and the, this image of course for the, the time, it's one of the most um, remarkable pieces of uh, flag design uh, it began as a benign image as we know the, 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 um, the swastika it, it, it didn't have these connotations but, um, um, and for the Nazis particularly uh, with the Beer Hall Putsch a flag which was stained with blood it became a sacramental object it embedded inside itself uh, rather like the body of Christ in the host it embedded in itself the essence of Nazi ideology and the great sea of flags so some of you will have seen the Lenny, Lenny Richten style film they touch the, the other flags on the uh, beer hole putsch um, flag with its blood stained uh, aura. So these images do have extraordinary potency um, an extraordinary presence and they seem to in, embody something. 
And this wonderful commentary by John Hartfelt, the Hartfield, the um, German photographer who anglicised his name, um, as in the Middle Ages, so in the Third Reich, um, the Tübingen image of St. George on a wheel of swords. And uh, I really needn't say about how potent this is as a as a visual commentary, the way in which you know, he can make a point through this visual juxtaposition of the, of, of the swastika, the, the dead body, and the, the Middle Ages image of the, the broken body of, of St. George. Writing about some of the images was spectacularly harrowing, particularly when they were backed up by footage of the actual events on YouTube or elsewhere in the internet. Um, this image, um, Route 1, or Route 1 I suppose it would be called in America, which was the main arterial road. Uh, the village was bombed, it was supposed to have Viet Cong in it of course by the time the aged uh, Vietnamese Air Force planes had arrived, the Viet Cong had all gone. It was bombed and then uh, straightforwardly bombed and then bombed with napalm. Um, and the villagers who were in the chapel um, uh, ran down the road uh, napalmed. There's ITN footage of this and after an hour or two of working on this chapter I had to go out and walk around. You couldn't do more than two hours without going out in the fresh air and uh, hearing the birds and, um, and seeing the trees. It's, it's harrowing things, like the Iwo Jima material which I looked at. But a remarkable story. Um, there's a family running down here. The girl is Kim Fook. Um, she'd stripped off her clothes because of the searing heat. She was running down the road stoically. Most of the time she didn't scream. She ran down the road with a stoic, steady, steady running. And this was a particular moment when she saw the uh, Nikut and this group of people waiting and she said, too hot, too hot, too hot. Um, but an amazing stoic resolution. She should have died. She stopped and they put, poured water over her, which may not be the most advisable thing, and she said to her brother, I think I'm going to die. And that was the most likely outcome. In fact, the photograph saved her, because Nikut, unusually in these circumstances, photographer took her off to a British hospital initially, um, a, a British um, emergency hospital, and said, I've taken this photograph which could well be in the press, do you want to be the person who doesn't save the life of this young girl? The photograph itself was one of a series that Nikot took. Um, they went off to Associated Press to Horse Fass, who was great photographer, as we will see, but was responsible for um, sending the things on, on the wire. And this was you know, very early stages of photographs being sent on the wire, being transmitted um, electrically. Um, and it was a problem. Full frontal nudity of a young woman, of a young girl. And he had to persuade his bosses that this should be taken. And he said, I think we've got another Pulitzer here. Um, the prize for the, um, the branch of the Pulitzer that's given for um, press photography, for um, high quality snapshots in a way. Um, she was transferred to an American um, an American hospital which could give better burns treatment and uh, 
Her story rolls on. She was then used by, when South Vietnam fell, she was then used by the North Vietnamese for propaganda. Um, she was educated. She went out to do a degree in Korea, met her husband, jumped the plane in Canada and lived for a time quietly in Canada, but was then outed by the Western press and exploited just as she'd been by the Vietnamese. And she thought, I can't escape the photograph. I'll use it. And she's used it for um, peaceful purposes and for her charity for, for war-torn children. Extraordinary person. And I think uh, her name deserves to be known via the photograph. Um, but... Uh, there are other remarkable photographs from Vietnam, and um, that's Horst Fast, the man who persuaded the Associated Press that this photograph should be used, and he, it's entitled Why. And this is a son, hold, uh, a father holding up his daughter, who's been exfoliated by Naplam, um, to this bunch of uh, South Vietnamese soldiers. And the lower one, probably the most artistic, arty photograph of them, of all the ones I'm showing from Vietnam, from Tim Page. Um, uh, Tim Page was the Dennis Hopper character in Apocalypse Now, full of just about every substance you could conceivably take on board. Um, he, ran, he rampaged around the Vietnamese battlefields, losing bits of his brain and leg, completely undeterred and took remarkable photographs and colour ones, which are rather unusual. Um, this was a, after the bombing of another chapel, which was housing Viet Cong in this case, with this nun going past. The uh, corpse had been coated in lime to stop it deteriorating uh, with too much odour. And it's lying there in this extraordinary... It's like a kind of St Peter, isn't it? It's struck down by the light. Fantastic image. Tim Page, amazing character. Um, uh, st still alive, living in Australia, and um, immensely helpful. But it, in a way, artistically, it's a it's a greater photograph than the uh, than the Nikut photograph. But interestingly, as an art historian, you can actually get some sense as to how this picture works in relation to traditional ways of making pictures. Um, the middle picture there is Raphael's Massacre of the Innocents um, by engraved. And it was always designed to be engraved. It was never a, a painting. And you can see that some of the formulas that work, the perspectival centrality of it, are giving that sense of focus, the figure coming out at you from that, um, the, the right kind of numbers of pictures for the space and so on. And there's no way that Nicot would have known or been interested in in, in thinking of himself in those terms but he has got an image which works in something of that way the lower one as you will see again is an iconic image in its own right Guernica, the great Picasso painting but Picasso is himself in this case created a little bit of a stage there's little bits of kind of perspective centralization going on but what Picasso knew is the sheer power of echoing screens of mouths that echo across across the picture and uh, Nicot has got that well he, in that photograph you've got these echoing screens um, in exactly the same way so I can analyse these in terms of high art even though they're not high art and say there are certain pictorial devices which um, help make an image memorable that help it get burrow into our, into our particular 
um, consciousness. The Coke bottle, a different world. Um, and in a way, a slightly comic world, as, as we will see. Um, Coke, the early years, the Coca-Cola website totally sanitizes the early years of Coca-Cola. And the displays in Coca-Cola world in Atlanta, I hope there are no lawyers in the audience, um, uh, again sanitize this. It began with John Pemberton, uh, a Civil War general and a, very, and a highly competent uh, pharmacist who concocted, as many other people did, fizzy drinks which were meant to be tonics. Um, he concocted a French wine cola in 1869, which, as its name suggests, had a certain amount of alcohol in it. And from the time of Priestley in the late 18th century, fizzy drinks had been um, made and sold, mainly in pharmacies. And they were thought of to be tonics, rather like going to the baths, rather like um, taking the waters at Bath or wherever. Anyway, he had his French wine cola in 1869. He himself had administered morphine to himself uh, because he was injured in the war and became addicted. Uh, the wine cola um, also had in it uh, cocaine, coca. Um, when the alcohol was eliminated, that's when the caffeine came in from the cola nut. Um, so it's got an, a very extraordinary history. Um, the, uh, the cocaine was still there quite late on, as it wasn't entirely clear um, how it worked. But if you imagine a drink which has got um, caffeine and cocaine in it, and it's sold as a brain tonic, then I think it's quite likely to have some kind of effect. The bottle arose very, in a very extraordinary way, and with a series of absolutely crazy accidents, in a sense. In 1915, Coke decided that they would have a brand bottle. They had their logo. This is Spencerian script. This is the standard decorative script from the 19th century, which was, and it was done by um, Pemberton's bookkeeper in a standard script, and it's endured. Fantastic, isn't it? 1869, it's still going as a, um, as a script. Anyway, they decided that they also wanted a bottle shape because... Coke was a particular economic model. The syrup was sent out to the bottling companies. They diluted it, and they put it in their own bottles with the Coca-Cola script. But it, they didn't have a standard bottle design, so they decided what they'd want, what we would now call a brand identity in their bottle. And they sent out saying the bottle should be recognisable by touch, even in the dark, and it should be recognisable even if broken in fragmentary form. The Root Bottling Company in Terra Haute, not Root Beer, but owned by a man called Chapman Root, were the ones who successfully took up the challenge in 1915. Chapman Root sent three of his employees down to the public library, the Vigo Public Library in Terra Haute. Um, I think that's the right pronunciation. If it's not, it will have to do. Um, and he sent them with a brief, and he obviously had some arts and crafts kind of ambitions. He sent them off to look for the cola nut and for the cocoa leaf, the coca leaf, the, the leaf which gave the cocaine and the, uh, the nut which gave the caffeine. And they went off and uh, 
Earl Dean, who is the bottling, in charge of the bottling plant and really the man responsible for bottle design, uh, tells the story. They went down to the local library and went, in, went to an encyclopedia. It would inevitably have been the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And if I then trace the steps, if you look for the uh, cola nut, there's no entry on cola nut at all, but you can get bits of it in African exports and in a general entry on nuts. No illustration. You go to coca and cocaine and you get a discussion of the plant and some indication under cocaine that it made natives who chewed it too much go slightly peculiar. But not much was known about it. No illustration. Um, this is Earl Dean's design, the one he came up with. There are two, there's a, the back of the bottle was sent off to the patents office, and this is the one which survives in the Vigo County Library in Terre Haute. Um, so what did they come across? What they came across was the cocoa tree with its fruit, um, which is, and Dean says, you know, it had a nice ribbed structure and it was wasted, i.e. It was, it was bendy. So what they got was actually the cocoa tree where cocoa and chocolate come from. So the Coke bottle really should contain a chocolate drink of some sort. And, uh, and Earl Dean never realised this, so as far as I can tell, and, um, and it seems to have sort of seeped through without anybody realising that it's actually based upon a cocoa tree. It is, as I said on start of the week, it's completely nuts. Uh, the bottle itself, uh, this is the prototype bottle, one in Atlanta in the uh, world of Coke and one in the Terre Haute in the Vigo County Library. Um, it's a bit too fat. They found that the, the, the bulge in the middle was bigger than the bulge at the bottom, and therefore that was narrowed down because it, it doesn't stack well if it's uh, not got at least two similar diameters at different, different, points, of the, different points of the bottle. But uh, very hard. Um, and one of the characteristic things about researching these images, each one you think, well, it's so famous, everyone must have done everything about it. You know, you'd think there'd be a monograph on the Coke bottle. You would think that each one of these is so famous. But in fact, the basic research often isn't done. And the basic research is quite difficult to do is there's such a layer of myth and misinformation around. The, the, these famous images attract myth, they attract um, an extraordinary quantity of, um, of legend, they, they almost demand it. The truth often is, doesn't do the job, it's, it's too boring. Um, so in a way the legends become more true than the truth. It's, um, uh, and that again is something which happens with cults, it happens in, in religions. E equals mc squared, to move into yet another different way, this is the fourth of my case studies and the examples, Rex May's cartoon. Uh, locked in, of course, to the very famous image of Einstein himself, um, the, the time cover, um, 
the uh, Philip Holtzman photograph. Philip Holtzman was a, a Jewish photographer who Einstein helped. That itself was used for a very famous time cover. And the Arthur Sass photograph, the, the, the very famous photograph of Einstein sticking his tongue out, as he put it, sticking his tongue out at humanity. Now, Einstein had a terrific sense of self-image. Initially, he was rather irritated by the trappings of fame, but he learned to exploit it. He knew he was a kind of, uh, he knew he became a visual icon with his hair not wearing any socks. And he talked about the, the, you know, being disheveled and how important it was to, to look like he did. Um, the image is very much a traditional image of the, of the wild genius. So an obvious point in, of comparison is Julia Margaret Cameron's photograph of the great astronomer Sir John Herschel using the hair in this particular way. But of course, when Einstein did his key work, he didn't look like that. By the time Einstein looked like he should look like, he'd stopped to do the really interesting stuff. Um, this, is a, this is a photograph by Lucien Chavan from, uh, uh, from 1906, 97. He'd stopped, just about stopped at this point being a a burn patents office clerk, but you can imagine he'd make a perfectly good patents office clerk in Bern looking like that. But that's when he did his key work. But another surprise that came up, well, that's not a surprise, that's just fairly obvious. Uh, researching this, I started looking in his papers, the 1905, the Annis Mirabilis papers, the set of papers which really rewrote physics and these brief papers in the um, Annalen der Physik, um, extraordinary papers and uh, supposedly equals mc squared is in those papers, it's not. Um, 97 paper, um, people said oh well it must be in the 97 paper, it's not. It's not in this 1912 manuscript which is the summary which he wrote which was unpublished of his researches, including the general and special theories of relativity. You can see there, it's almost there, he's crossed out the L, which I think is for a Lagrangian, um, E equals MC, but this is not the situation of nil impetus. And I don't think Einstein himself ever used this until it was used about him. And if you go on YouTube and you look at Einstein introducing this formula, he says it can be said, or it might be said, or it is approximately true that. Um, so my, my friends, uh, historians of physics, some of my physicists, got, he's got rather annoyed. You know, he said, oh, it's there, it's mathematically equivalent. You know, 1905 paper, you can get E equals MC <coughs> squared out of it, and certainly the 1907 paper. And being rather pedantic, I say, no, I want the formula. I want the image. And uh, eventually, one by one, they said, oh, it's not there, is it? Uh, so e even serious historians sort of assumed that something was there. And yeah, sure, mathematically, you can get it out of it. Uh, but um, I think it was never actually, it wasn't Einstein's invention, E equals MC squared, though it became absolutely uh, in, in, ingrained with him. Uh, inevitably, I have to ask and to try to answer the question is are there things which these images have in common 
And I'm arguing that there is no set of absolutely necessary central characteristics. There's not five, six characteristics, and you can have images which uh, don't overlap at all in their, in their common core of characteristics. I've had various goes at it. This one was for, uh, this transcribes my go in the books, and I called them fuzzy formulas, because I thought it would be interesting to look at uh, fuzzy group or fuzzy set theory as a way of creating uh, groups of things that clearly instinctively belong together and have lots of shared overlapping associations but don't have an absolutely essential set of common characteristics. And I think it works quite well in a way. We know iconic images and we feel they have a certain power but it's rather like beauty. It's, uh, you can't come up with this simple central set of, of characteristics. Um, I've had a new go at it as I've been asked to write something for uh, the Wall Street Journal online um, and was filming a, a piece for them this morning. And let's just go through these. I won't explain them, but it just gives you an idea of a bit of the thinking. A simplicity of message that is at once definitive and compelling, but also open, this is very important, to broad, rich and varied series of associations. The ability to work with both generic and specific meanings. I won't expand these, um, but uh, you can get a sense of how they work. An openness to various kinds of individual and collective engagement, a special interplay with shared human values, the focus of devotional or cult practice, and the forging of collective identity. Now, you can say, well, one of the iconic images doesn't do two or three of these things. That's no problem. Um, this notion that uh, you're not defining essential, necessary characteristics but you're defining a kind of field of characteristics um, which you can identify. And the visual characteristics, a sense of visual presence that implies something beyond its material existence, a measure of symmetry or of carefully weighted asymmetrical balance, memorable symbolicity at the heart of the image, the nap-armed girl, for instance, that crucifix posture, and that what otherwise is a very complex, quite a complex image. Um, Memorable, yeah, uh, tonal and coloristic clarity, uh, which is linked to the robustness in the face of degraded reproduction. You can degrade the Mona Lisa, you can degrade most of these to the point where there's almost nothing, and you still say, ah, Mona Lisa, or whatever. Um, making good repeats, Andy Warhol got that. Warhol got these images that make very good repeats, i.e., like wallpaper patterns. That the space in between the images is kind of important into how, how they work. And recognisability and fragmentary form, which, of course, the Coke competition got that very early on. But even the American flag, you can, you can, get, in, uh, you can get in fragmentary form. The other thing is the images are still living. They still have a potency. They still, things are still happening. Um, this was the Guardian's response to the idea that neutrinos were it was travelling faster than the speed of light. Personally, I should be delighted if this is true, because I've always had great problems with the logical inconsistencies in modern physics. Anyway, it may be completely chimerical, but of course the reaction then is that uh, uh, Einstein is wrong and kind of demonised with horns, um, because the, 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 the speed of light as the constant is, is, is eroded. 
And the book itself ends up by getting in some very pla strange places. Um, Glass International, which is the uh, uh, which is the Journal of the International Glassmaking Market. Um, of all the packaging materials, it says at the bottom in the world, only glass makes the list of icons. Anyway, my ambition may be to become a, a very well-paid brander, and uh, perhaps I'm getting there. Okay, thank you very much. Right, we'll just allow a couple of minutes just to change of scenery for some people. Um, I'm going to take the prerogative of any uh, chair and be able to ask the first question. So it'll enable you just to um, formulate a few questions coming up. Um, again, thank you so much. It, it was an amazing talk and I got an awful lot from it. Um, I'm just wondering if you could sort of... I'd love to have your ideas. Um, we live really over the last from the 1950s, 1960s, where advertising really took off. Um, we live in a world which really has so many iconic images in the importance of marketing and advertising. And I'm just wondering to what extent you feel that in order to understand the world today, that we've all got to have a higher level of visual literacy to make sense of what we're doing, how important that is. Yeah, I feel very strongly about that. Uh, both visual literacy and old-fashioned literacy in sources. So, uh, yeah, certainly a sense of how we can look at this enormous number of images and actually tackle them on some kind of critical basis rather than just letting them come at us remorselessly. Uh, but there's also there's another lesson which is related to that and that is a very old-fashioned historical lesson of saying what is the source of this where does it come from you know, people some of my academic colleagues came up to me and said of course the reason father christmas wears red and white is because of the great coca-cola advertisements of christmas where this great ruby-cheeked father christmas expansive father christmas is dressed in red and white and people will say this quite seriously and it's absolutely untrue. And Father Christmas was in red and white before that. Uh, so people who ought, in a sense, to know better, they take things on trust. So there's a ba very basic old-fashioned image here saying, what's the source? Can I cut it back? Can I get back to the primary source? And that's what historians have always tried to do. And on the internet, we tend not to do that. The images are so convincing the presentation is so convincing and the authority of sites that look reliable. Wikipedia is an excellent example of that. So I think there's a terrific job to do of being critical of the seductive power of the image and say where does it come from, how does it work, why does it work like that, but also uh, scraping away the, the accretion of of semi-truth which lies over these and I think the iconic images are excellent case studies because the accretion of semi-truth is just uh, extraordinary um, yeah now the, the coke coke bottle somebody came out of course Lurvy the great French designer designed the coke bottle he wasn't he wasn't even beginning to think of working when the coke bottle came out he tweaked it a bit he, he adjusted the central band but, um, 
So you know, I think there's a, there's a, there are lessons there, and they're old-fashioned lessons for of a visual historian and a historian. And uh, uh, even in these days of um, uh, of the bombardment of images and information, I say even more because of the bombardment, we need that basic probity of of, of method. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, first question. I know we've got the set. Oh, right, the left wing then coming through. First, we're going to do question by question rather than groups of questions. Well, they think the they're the right wing, of course. Or the right. <laughs> we think it's all relative, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I was interested that um, you spent quite a bit of time on war, and quite a lot of the images that you've discussed perhaps wouldn't exist because of war or needed war to become famous or exist in the first place. The, the one that confuses me a little bit is, is Mona Lisa. So you talked about the pilgrimage today and its, you know, and its value today in society. But if we go back 100 years, that wasn't necessarily the case. I know you're the expert on this. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that and, and why that changed through time. Unless perhaps it was just because it was stolen during war that changed it. It's behind bulletproof glass. And yeah. Well, one of the things which I was told repeatedly is that the Mona Lisa only became famous after it was stolen. And that's actually not true. Um, very remarkably, it was very heavily copied early on. Now, pictures of popes or kings might be copied early on for fairly obvious reasons, for dynastic reasons or for propaganda reasons. But here is a Florentine bourgeois woman, Lisa Garadini, old landed gentry, Mary New Money, Mary Francesco del Giocondo, a blameless life, finished her life as a widow in the convent of St. Ursula. Um, and yet early on, from Leonardo's time onwards, from his death onwards, you've got clusters of copies. That's very odd for a portrait. It, it, it really it happened a bit with Rembrandt, but not in the same degree. So people felt it was extraordinary. And I think it's the first portrait that became a picture that detached itself from uh, being primarily a representation of Lisa Garadini. And uh, Leonardo himself, his studio, produced the same pose in a nude version, which was in Francis uh, First's Apartment des Bains. So it became a, an independent picture. You then get lots of 16th century examples of beautiful women. The Venetians did a lot of this, the Belle Donne. But uh, so already there was a sense that it was exceptional and it wasn't just a portrait of a bourgeois Florentine woman but it was a great painting in, in that sense. Um, there's a wonderful description by Vasari which anybody who read their art history would read the lives of Giorgio Vasari and it's one of the great set pieces, set piece descriptions. Um, it goes underground a bit. It comes up again when it's engraved very brilliantly in the 19th century, and above all in the generation of Pater. There's this spectacular verbal account by, by Walter Pater in the Renaissance of the Mona Lisa. She is older than the rocks amongst which she sits, and beauty wrought out from within little cell upon little cell. Um, so this is all before the, the stealing. 1911 helped a lot if you were plotting a graph of her fame, if you could sort of Google her over the years, as it were, you would suddenly find a great spike. Much as happened with DNA, the great spikes were in the 10-year anniversary and the human genome. 
So the citation record of DNA is quite bumpy. And in these histories, you can identify these, the ascent of something, but these sudden spikes. So the 1911 theft did a lot. And of course, it was uh, broadcast around the world. It became a great cause celebre when it was um, rediscovered. And as I say, more people queued up to look at the, the grubby space on the wall left by the Mona Lisa than had queued up initially to look at the real thing. But um, yeah, it was... It, it was known already to be an extraordinary picture um, and it was never very obscure it was in the French collection it was in the Louvre which is you know, an early public museum after all so yeah okay question here hello I work in sports marketing and we set up we spend a lot of our time setting up a situation to capture an iconic image. It might be of a captain lifting a trophy or something like that. And for London 2012, there will be cameras everywhere to capture every possible image. Um, and I realize you didn't pick sport among your selection. You might have done, you know, Muhammad Ali or something. But do you think some of the same principles apply for sport um, compared to some of the other images you've been discussing? Yeah, ab absolutely. The, um, I mean, I'm a sports nut, and I, I put forward a, a, a Radio 3 series of looking at great sports commentary, the audio commentary. You know, I listen to radio incessantly, I don't have a television, but uh, those great sporting moments. The cross chapter, I actually open up with Maradona on the hand of God, um, and the famous image of... Uh, Maradona doing this and Shilton with his rather short shorts in those days uh, coming out and not punching the ball. The, the, this I'm afraid for people who don't know the history of England in the World Cup. I have to say my family is Scottish so I have uh, ambiguous feelings about <laughs> Maradona and the hand of God. But Maradona of course crosses himself before the game and after scoring a goal as indeed you know, the Spanish players in the Premier League do now and they cross themselves a good deal during the the course of the game, so I begin with that. Yeah, you, you'll not get me leaving out sport, but um, yeah, the, the definitive image is uh, often as much of triumph as tragedy. Uh, one of the great images, again, a very British one, is um, from, uh, what's her name, winning the, winning the 800 metres in the, in the Olympics, and that's fantastic look on her face. But uh, you've also, of course, got now a lot of iconic clips of great goals of great baskets and basketball and so on and, um, yeah, these are magic moments I, mean, I think the, when, when a great sports person does something which you can see how it's done but you think my gosh just awesome sort of transcendent they, they can have that, that feeling about them and, uh, for me those moments in sport are like a great moment in Beethoven or Charlie Parker Solo, where uh, you know suddenly you get <laughs> just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We, we, could, we could do one on sp iconic sports images. A good idea. From the gentleman with the glasses there, and we'll move to the lady with the scarf. Presumably, Professor Kemp, um, iconic images are a function of mass societies with their mass media. Is there anything comparable in pre-industrial societies? Well, obviously. Um, religious images are the ones which were propagated to the greatest degrees uh, and images of rulers um, sometimes embedded say in an eagle or in a lion 
Um, so there, there, there certainly were images which circulated on a mass scale. And one reason why um, the classic Eastern Orthodox icon is works so well is because Christ always looks the same, St. Peter always looks the same, the Virgin looks the same. So these are reproducible images. And when one of the Greek confessors was in the, in the Netherlands um, for the great council between the Eastern and Western churches, he said, I, I can't work with any of the images. He said, I can just about recognize Christ, but I can't worship, worship him. So that repetition of the image, the authorized image, um, which, and uh, yeah, Kuzan has sent back to the, the, his home monastery an image of Christ's face, probably painted by Jan van Eyck, because he was in that league. So... Yeah, there are, there are those mass images. Egyptian gods and goddesses. Enormous numbers. I mean, Sekhmet, the lion-headed goddess who I look at, the temple at Karnak, has image after image after image after image. And then they're produced in smaller versions and go all over the world. Images of, American em uh, of, uh, of Roman emperors. Yeah, there are, uh, yeah, there are... Yeah, I could build up quite a bank of... Um, of mass images, so I think the type of phenomenon isn't different, but the sheer promiscuousness with which we do it is different. Thank you. Lady there in the middle. So I actually have two questions. Uh, so the first of uh, is, you explained this disclaimer in the beginning, so, uh, and I understand it, but I was wondering whatever you have ever got any feedback from actually Coca-Cola on your book? So that's the first uh, question, and the second is that I was uh, I had recently noticed that there are some uh, trend uh, in using uh, images of fruits, so like apple, blackberry, orange, and like this kind of things, especially in telecoms uh, area. So I was wondering, do you have any explanations, or what are your thoughts on that? Thank you. Yeah, um, the Coke one lawyers, and particularly American lawyers, move incredibly slowly. So I'm, I'm not confident that I won't get a letter from a, a, a Coke lawyer. I, I would slightly relish it, but of course in the book contracts you always take responsibility for the content, and if anybody's going to be sued, I hope Oak University Press wouldn't die for cover, but um, it, would, it would come at me. Um, it would do something for the sales, wouldn't it? Um, uh, the <laughs> I've become a, now, now I'm retired. I'm very vulgar and commercial. So yeah, I want, I've got books to sign. So, yeah. yes, there will be a signing of the book. <laughs> After uh, the end. Sorry, the, the second always oh, about about fruit. Yeah, various fruit have been freighted with enormous amounts of meaning, particularly apples, in the Christian tradition. And uh, the New York was for a time the Big Apple. And interestingly, that then got transferred to Apple computers. And I, my first computer was a uh, was a Mac Plus, a little little upright box, this tiny little television screen, and everything. Um, I went for it like lots of visual people. Was I? I did. It, I do things intuitively in a visual way, and I, I found PCs rather repellent in that respect. Um, but that had this this bitten apple with it's very stripy as well 
And that was because Bill Gates' favorite apple was a Macintosh apple. He actually didn't spell Macintosh right, but there we are. Um, and yeah, now other, other fruit. You, th you, you think there's, there's a lot of other fruit coming in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this kind of thing. So I was wondering why. Is it yeah. Blackberry or what is, what is If you're interested in Blackberry, the, the New Yorker about two months ago had a terrifically interesting article centered on the Blackberry and why they chose that. And it was one of these sort of brainstorming things where they thought of various fruits. And... Uh, blackberry, because it's a black thing, seemed to be right, and it sounded berry sounded fairly incisive. It's both seductive, but it's a nice sort of percussive thing. You know, berry, blackberry, and there's a very interesting article on the brainstorming of that as the name, as the name for it. Um, yeah, and uh, people put enormous effort into that, and it's it's not without chance that uh, that you you get certain get certain names coming up. Um, so I don't think there's an infallible formula, but um, there's certainly things you should avoid doing, which is probably almost easier. But uh, yeah, uh, there is a, a fruit thing going on in the cosmetics industry that lots of the major big-selling perfumes, the classic ones, are being reformulated, and they're adding fruit flavours. And then there's a whole thing. I did some work for L'Oreal a year or so ago. And um, it was amazing looking into all of the campaigns and the whole things to do with natural, you can trust us, fruit is good, a perfume with fruit is better, you know, it's a thing. So there is something in the iconography. I'm conscious there's a, a blind spot here. There may be hands going up over here. Could, if not, I know there's a hand there. Could I just follow up a bit on that with a kind of slight aside? Um, Heston Blumenthal has been working with the neurologists, the neuroscientists in Oxford, and they've been looking at the relationship of a name of something and the taste of something, and what happens when you have a disjunction. Heston Blumenthal plays on this because he has sophisticated customers who enjoy the disjunction of a, of a salmon mousse being called a, a, a fish ice cream. But what they have found is that the description, which you know, I find incredibly irritated, of corn-fed chicken does actually affect uh, how people appreciate the food. <coughs> yeah, I don't want to think I'm, I, can, I can be manipulated, but like hell, you know, I almost certainly am. And that cross-modality, as the, the neuroscientists call, call it, that go across these different sensory zones of the heard thing, the tasted thing, the seen thing. So I can imagine that uh, uh, you could, in terms of these perfumes, the, the image of a fruit, mm. its sort of scent, its smell, the associations, and that it's a cross-modal thing which mm. then splashes across and you actually perhaps think the perfume smells better than yeah. you would if you didn't have that. I mean, the, the most obvious is the DK, DKNY one, which you've got Big Apple, New York, Donna Karen, Apple, Perfume, Kaching, put it all together. Gentleman there, in the check shirt. Hello. 
So um, yeah, I've got two questions as well. I wanted to ask first about um, the methodology used in like collecting data, maybe the type of people you ask, the societies you were collect your data from in terms of what images they see as iconic and also um, how much you see your study or explore the idea of um, a commentary on cultural imperialism and kind of impressing these images upon people and globalizing yeah. these images. The first one on the method, initially it was entirely um, aggregational and, and, uh, and subjective, but I then have done some work which we're going to publish eventually um, with an art historian, German art historian called Massimilian Schich, who's been looking at uh, popularity of images, indeed even of lost works of art. And we're, we're collaborating with Diego Pupin, somebody who works for Google, and trying to work out a, a way of getting at the popular popularity of images um, and the ubiquity and it's not simple um, you can google the Mona Lisa and you can google Michelangelo's David and you get kind of results which are tolerably reliable but of course if, you, if you're doing the lion against the Mona Lisa then it's a deep problem because they're not the same sort of thing um, so but uh, we already have some results of uh, at least, I think six of the images, and I won't name them now, have got to a total flat line situation where they're, where they're absolutely without spikes. They just go on at that level. Uh, Mona Lisa, you get uh, something like, or at least you did yesterday, something like 34 million hits in Google for that. Um, and it goes up by about a million or so a day. But we, we are and to some extent the book was informed by that running study but we haven't done it, but, uh, it it's not altogether simple as to how you take the subjective effect which I'm perfectly happy to, to operate with you, 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 know, you can all do the subjective bit that's fine um, it's not easy to get that into a more rigorous analytic, analytical method uh, anyway, we want to get back to that and publish some of that. Okay, thank you. Uh, time for one more question. Gentleman here, front row. Lady over here. Oh, sorry, we need to go there. Then finally, okay. Thank you, very interesting. Um, well, in branding and advertising, we keep talking about um, relating the brand to social text. And with these iconic images like Coca-Cola and your point of view, what made them iconic? Is it relating it to um, something like um, Father Christmas or um, um, as a, a social element? Or is it really propaganda keep you know, talking about their iconic bottle that made it iconic bottle? Yeah. The it's a complicated question. It's a kind of chicken and egg situation in a way. But there must be, in visually, there must be a core of something which is memorable, which you see once and you've, you've remembered it. But one of the characteristics of them, and in my list of things I emphasised the kind of sense of openness, and that's really what the fuzzy categories are about, um, that the coke you can get all sorts of associations from personal you know if you uh, 
the first time you kissed a girl or a boy was uh, when you'd been drinking coke after a dance or something through to the image of coke in, as, a, as a surrogate for America um, and these images as I say they tend to detach themselves from immediate function and have multiple associations and great art does that Great art is generous. It doesn't say this is all you're getting. It invites you in to uh, to make your own meanings, as it were. And I think all these images have got to that point where um, they're both very specific. You can identify what they are, but um, they have all sorts of associations. The Che image certainly does that. I mean, it merges with the image of Christ in an extraordinary way. Um, so it, it's a very peculiar balance between something which is immediately recognisable, very cogent um, and unambiguous as an image, which at the same time can be open to you, me and everybody to cluster a rich, a rich set of associations around it. And how they do that is, is extraordinary. And I think if, if I was asked, you know, how, how useful is this book for branding, in a way these images are so exceptional, uh, that, uh, and they have such exceptional stories, that um, for the average branding job they're probably quite difficult to apply, in fact. Okay, thank you. And our final question. Um, just looking at those uh, uh, fuzzy concepts you had, just one, uh, I'd be interested in a little bit more about where you um, uh, talk about um, uh, the robustness in the, in the face of deg degradation. Uh, is there a sense that um, that can enhance images uh, generally, do you think? Yeah, I fiddled around with Photoshop and various facilities with the images, seeing how far I could get them down to almost nothing and they still remained recognisable. And I thought the toughest one to do with the ones I, I, I had would be the nup-armed girl. Because it's, you know, there's lots of stuff going on all over the place. And indeed, the fringe elements disappeared. Uh, but I, the one I found was very telling was there's a stamp facility which turns it, it, it reverses its negative and it turns it into a kind of thing you could do as a rubber stamp. It's a wonderfully instant way of degrading an image. And you can do it to various levels. Uh, but that central figure of that, there was clearly a naked figure, even heavily degraded with the arms out, came through. So I, I was surprised. You know, so I think, uh, I wouldn't say degradation is absolutely... In a way, the heart you can't degrade any further. You know, it's already there. The cross you can't degrade any further. So, they're they're kind of pre pre degraded, as it were. But, um, I think it, it is a it is a very potent characteristic, and also the fragment. The American flag. You only need one star and a bit of a stripe, and you're in business. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I'd like to really express a great round of thanks to Martin Kemp.
For me, it's been very, very important. I've been a fan of yours for, for quite some time. Um, Martin's going to be available for book signing um, immediately after this, um, and it, it is a terrific read. Um, but I think what you've actually done, it's A, it's important for everyone to listen, but particularly at LSE and for social scientists, the, the way it is important to have some sort of visual literacy and to see the way things interconnect, it's absolutely vital. And I'm really, really glad you've taken the time to spend some time with us and really share this with us. Thank you very much indeed.